Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Thoughts from a Page podcast just turned one. And I want to say thanks so much to everyone who has supported me on this wonderful journey. I'm ready to start offering some cool bonus content and extras to those who want to become a part of my page turners group on Patreon. If you are ready to take the next step with me, you will have access to at least two bonus episodes a month. One will be me chatting about books, what I have read and loved and not loved, what I have DNF'd and why, what's upcoming that I'm really excited about, some thematic talks and more. And the second will be two different bookstagrammers each month chatting together about their journeys and book recommendations. I will also be adding in some other bonus episodes periodically. Page Turners will have access to a preview list of upcoming author interviews by month and other behind-the-scenes content. I am so excited to talk books with everyone and provide some special behind-the-scenes and patron-only content here. I really hope you will join me. The link to find out more is in the show notes and on my website under the support tab. Thanks for considering it. Today, I am interviewing Claire McIntosh about Hostage. Claire is the multi-award-winning author of four Sunday Times best-selling novels. She lives in North Wales with her husband and her three children. I absolutely loved Hostage, and it is one of my July Buzz Reads picks. I had the best time chatting with Claire about it, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Welcome, Claire. How are you today? I'm really great, thank you. How are you? I'm also really great, and I am so excited to talk about Hostage. I sat down to start the book, and about however many hours later, I finished it. I literally read it in one setting. It is so good. Well, that makes me very happy indeed. (laughs) Why don't we start with you talking a little bit about the book for those that haven't read it? 
Sure. So Hostage is a contemporary take on the classic locked room mystery. It's a novel that takes place on a non-stop flight from London to Sydney, and the action centers around a flight attendant, Mina. So fairly early on in the flight, Mina becomes aware that somebody on the plane means them harm, and she has to make a really, really difficult decision. Does she prioritize the lives of all those people on that plane or the lives of her family who are, she thinks, safe at home, um, but it turns out they're not. How did you come up with the premise for this one? As I was reading, I just over and over again was like, how did she come up with all of this? So this is a kind of combination of of things. So I've got a couple of female friends who are pilots, and I love talking to them about their jobs and the challenges that they face I, as a child, was desperate to be a flight attendant. I still harbor a secret desire to to be cabin crew. So whenever I travel, which I do a lot in normal times, not in pandemic times, but normally with work, I travel all over the world talking about books and meeting readers. And so I spend a lot of time at airports and, and on planes. And I always love to watch the flight attendants. And, you know, you catch glimpses of them being sort of off duty, because they're never really off duty, are they? If if they're on the plane, they're sort of uh, customer facing. But if you just peek behind the curtain, you see them leaning against the galley and talking to their colleagues and, and kind of off duty. And I love that contrast and that reminder that these people have a private life. They've got all sorts of stuff going on in their personal lives that could conflict with uh, what's what's going on at work. And then I thought, so I was on a a long haul flight from London to San Francisco, which is, I think, about 13 hours. And, you know, we we live in a really hyper connected world. And when we're on an airplane, it's one of the few times where we're not super connected. We're not getting constant texts and, and emails and messages. And actually anything could happen and you wouldn't know it. And I asked myself what would happen right now mid-flight, if something terrible happened, how would a flight attendant deal with it? I thought you did a wonderful job of getting into Mina's head. And once she sort of got the note from a passenger, but she didn't know which passenger, telling her what she needed to do, then she was on high alert and she was, you know, suspected everybody. And she was trying to figure out who it was. And it was such an uncomfortable feeling. Like she felt like she was being watched, but she didn't even know who it was. And I just loved that. I mean, it just truly had me on the edge of my seat. I think that those are the kinds of books that I love to read. And and a good writer will always, always write what they love reading, I think. I love not knowing where a threat is coming from. I think that's far more terrifying than the classic thriller where we know who the baddie is and, you know, the, the, the detective or whoever is trying to avoid them. And so what I loved about this scenario was the idea that on this plane were hundreds of people and some were friends and some were foes. And that just seemed like a a really, really terrifying situation to be in. I agree completely. And the way you did the format, in addition to Adam's perspective and Mina's perspective, with the random passengers and all you knew was where they were sitting on the plane and, you know, a little bit of their thoughts, I kept having to kind of flip back and forth. Wait a minute, is this the same passenger or is this a different passenger? That was really very clever. I had uh, I had this huge seating plan on on the wall of my office as I was writing this book. 
so I, you know, the layout of the plane and where, where everyone was sitting and where they, they moved around just so I, I could keep track of it. But this is very much something I, I do when I'm, when I'm traveling is, is look at my fellow passengers and wonder why they're traveling, what, you know, what, what, what's the, what their story is, their backstory and who they're going to see. And it's something actually that, that over the last year has become really relevant as, as we've talked a lot, certainly in, in the UK about essential travel and what constitutes essential travel, whether we should be making journeys, whether, it, you know, it, it's, it's important or not, the impact that it's been having on the environment to, to not be flying as much. And I think it's made a lot of people think about that their reasons for travel. And so a lot of, those sorts of ideas went into the the passengers' stories. I just loved that because I felt like it brought them to life, but also it just created this completely tense environment. You know, myself, I was trying to lay out the plane and think, okay, where the bar is and where these different seats are. And I figured you had to have some kind of map to be able to keep it straight. I think, I, yeah, I might have got terribly lost. I also was saved by my copy editor, who copy editors are brilliant. And if, if, if anyone who's listening doesn't really know what a, a copy editor does, they, they do the really important small bits towards the end of a, a book where they're picking up continuity errors. You know, here we've got a pregnancy that seems to last 11 months, or you've got three things happening on, on uh, you know, the same day in three different places. But they also pick up on things that are, are really wrong. And something that I'd got wrong in this book is that I had included the letter I in my seating plan. And so my rows went um, A, B, C, D, E, F, D, H, I, uh, J, and there's no row I on uh, on an airplane. It's um, it, it misses it out altogether because it looks too much like a one. So details like that are really important, I think, for, for getting that consistency and, and that authenticity. Absolutely. And so that's interesting because I guess I have flown on those larger planes and I just never thought about there not being an I. Well, thank goodness for the copy editor, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what about your research? I would assume you had several areas that you had to research. Adoption, the plane, because you come up with a fictional plane since this is kind of the first time that this type of flight would have been done for that length. How was all of your research? So the route itself, the London to Sydney route, is a route that is uh, is imminent. It's going to be starting really soon, and it takes 20 hours. So I could have chosen the actual airline that's going to be flying that route. They're already flying London to Perth, and so actually it, it, it's only a couple of hours more. But I don't like to set something that is very obviously a, a crime novel, a disaster novel uh, in many ways, on a real life airline. I think it's uncomfortable for that airline. Um, yes, they would not be a fan of yours at all. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to be sued and I don't want anyone to feel bad. So I think it's really important in that sort of situation to make it fictional. So it also meant that I could create a fictional airline with fictional shift patterns, rosters, crew numbers, and know that actually nobody can tell me I've done it wrong because it doesn't ex exist. So it's really, it was quite an indulgent thing to do, but I did still need to do a lot of research. And if we start with the, the plane side of things, so I spoke to lots of flight attendants and watched a lot of videos and I love how much cabin crew vlog and blog. It is just awesome. You can find out exactly what they have in their handbags and what they wear and when they change their shoes and just the, the most 
interesting, tiny detail that enables a writer to make a, a book really authentic. But then I also had to speak to pilots. And there's a fair amount of action in the book that revolves around the flight deck and the actual flying of the plane. And I have never flown a plane before. So I did a couple of things. I went to a, a flight simulation center and I landed a Boeing 777 at Sydney Airport in the exact conditions that the plane would be landed in the book so that I could feel what that was like and see the, the view, see the runway, see the visibility. I crashed. I, I, I'm, I think probably this career isn't, isn't for me. Um, so I did that. And then <laughs> I spent a really, really long time on Skype calls with a pilot who doesn't want to be named. And, and so I, I can't thank him in person. But he spent hours with me, taking me through every single detail of that flight deck, reading scenes, making sure that they were not only accurate, but also that I wasn't compromising here. I wasn't compromising anything. I wasn't revealing anything that wasn't in the public domain. So it was quite a, a fine balance because obviously I'm not, I don't want to write a, a manual for, for hijack. A how-to. Well, yeah, exactly. You'll be, you'll be like, thank you so much, Claire McIntosh. Now we know how to hijack an airplane. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not do that. Uh, yes, exactly. That's interesting on the public domain. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. No, and actually one of my friends, one of my pilot friends, told me something that enabled me to do a thing, and we're not going to introduce spoilers, but enabled me to do a thing in the book. And then she, she rang me back and she said, I don't know if you're supposed to know that. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is really awkward now because I've, you know, I, I'm engineering a part of the plot around it. What am I going to do? And so actually what I did is I, I went looking for that information somewhere else and I found it on the internet, kind of buried in a message board in a conversation between two uh, pilots. And so I could let her off the hook and say, it's okay. I, you know, I have that, that, that information is out there. It's not, it's not a trade secret that you've just betrayed Oh, that's so fascinating. Well, I do feel like when writers take the time to do the in-depth research that you're talking about is when the book really comes to life. And I just felt like for yours, I was right there and I was in the midst of it. And that's because it sounds like, you know, you did go through the process of what it would be like to land the plane and some of those various factors. It makes such a huge difference. I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. And as a reader, I find those details really make a difference. I was a police officer for, for 12 years and have always read crime novels and have always felt annoyed by, by small but significant errors. And so actually, it's not the big things. It's not the kind of, oh, this case you know, would never be solved like that. Or that doesn't worry me because this is fiction. And actually, we don't write about things that probably happen. We write about things that probably wouldn't, but could. What annoys me is the way people talk to each other, the little details, the, you know, the British officers who have guns when actually they wouldn't have, the cars that they drive, those sorts of things that actually are very easy to research, but sometimes are glossed over by writers. And so now that I'm writing out of my comfort zone, because you know, I, I wrote my first three novels were police detective crime thrillers. So I'm writing in a, in a different space now. And it was important to me that I stay as authentic in this space as I was in my police world. Did you find it to be very different to write in this space versus in your crime novel space where you were dealing with a police procedural since that's something you had done in the past? 
I found it quite liberating. And for two reasons, I think. Firstly, because when you're dealing with a civilian hero, in effect, which is what Mina is in, in Hostage, they, they don't have to follow rules, whereas, you know, your police officer has either got to follow the rules of the law and, and of his, his or her employer, but they also, or, or, the, or they have to justify where, why they're not doing it. And so that's where you get the, the maverick cop, you know, the lone ranger who goes off on their own, whereas Mina could do anything I wanted her to do. And, and so that was great. And then liberating too, I suppose, because I'm not from that world and and I'm not held back all the time by a little voice saying well of course you know it's it's unlikely that that would happen or or perhaps this this would be picked up on somewhere else I could I could let my imagination run wild I like that you're not bound by the strictures of a certain environment like a police detective having to follow all those rules but instead could just kind of go in whatever direction you wanted Yeah Well, I don't want to give anything away for those that haven't read it, so I'm going to be careful how I ask this question. But the ending was just phenomenal. (laughs) So did you know from the very beginning exactly how the story was going to go, or did you have the framework for it? And as you wrote, different things developed. But I mean, I just got to the end and I was like, oh my gosh. Do you know what? It's really uncool to say this about your own work, but I love that ending so much. Every time I think about it, it kind of, it gives me a little kind of secret smile. I just, it's just really, really fun. But no, I didn't know that was going to happen. And there are actually, there's almost a false end to the, to the book, isn't there? So, so, you know, we, right. the, the story comes, comes to a, a, a perfectly sort of natural, surprising, twisty end. And then there's a bit more. And it's the, right. bit, the bit more that I didn't know was coming. And it didn't come until the very, very last draft. And it, it came because the last draft for me is all about polishing those characters and really working out, making sure they're, they're true to themselves, that they are fully rounded and that they are making, making decisions that they would make in real life, you know, not, not ones that I've done for them. And what happened during that process is that a particular character really, really came to life and it gave me an idea for what they might do at the end. Well, I just loved it. I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, you know, I got to the end and I thought I just had to sit there for like five minutes going, okay, that was one of the best endings of a book. <laughs> so you did very well. <laughs> Radicalization. I'd like to talk about that without getting into the ins and outs of exactly what was happening in the book. But that is such a timely topic. And there seems to be with the internet and Facebook groups and, you know, various ways to reach people these days, a growing problem. And so I was glad that you took it on. And I was curious how you feel about it and how hard that was to depict. It's a really hard topic. And really, it's, I guess the the book, you know, Hostage isn't about radicalization. But clearly, it's a theme that, that runs through the book. And in many ways, I felt... I could have written a, a whole different book just about those that element and and those those characters. You know, it, it really deserved its own platform. It's it's a subject that's fascinated me for for a long time. So when I started in in the police, I was posted to Oxford in in England, and at the time there was a a huge problem with animal rights protesters, so domestic extremism which is a type of terrorism that we perhaps don't think of very, very often. But actually, the, 
the process is exactly the same, whether you are being radicalized into animal rights protests or religious extremism or climate change or feminism or anything else that could be taken to extremes and applied in a dangerous way. And what I found really intriguing about this was the way that ordinary everyday people can cross that line into criminal activity. And that was really what I wanted to to explore. And it's something that I learned a lot more about as as I went through my police career. And, And we were always trained to look out for radicalization, that if we came across young people or uh, vulnerable people, to make sure that we were alert to the signs that they might be being groomed to move into a a radicalized organization. I thought you depicted that well, because I think you're exactly right. It's a slow process, and it is those vulnerable, lonely sort of people a lot of times who don't have a place, and they want to find some group And so these groups prey on that, knowing that's the best way to bring people in. But you also kind of depicted that that people are radicalized, but they don't always know exactly what they're being radicalized for. Like they may be on board with the general idea of the movement, but they don't always know exactly what's going to happen. And things kind of get outside their comfort zone or outside of what they're expecting to happen very quickly. And then it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. It's ultimately, this is about power. And it's the same sort of relationship that we might see in a coercive domestic relationship, for example. It's about the the perpetrator identifying weakness in their target and exploiting it. And so whether that's by a husband belittling a a wife and and chipping away at her self-esteem, or whether it's, it's someone who is radicalizing a vulnerable person by giving them friendship, which is what they, they desperately need, or, or complimenting them on something that boosts their, their self-esteem. It's all about the balance of power and it's incredibly worrying and, and very dangerous. But of course, rich territory for a writer. Absolutely. Reminds me of cults too. You know, it's that same idea of the power and someone who wants to be in control and brings people into the fold that way too. You're absolutely right. It is exactly that sort of relationship. It's frightening. Well, what about your favorite character to write in this one and your least favorite character? Oh, good question. Um, okay, well, so I've got a bit of a cheat for my least favorite. I'll, I'll come back to him. My, my favorite character was Sophia, who is five years old, and she is Mina and Adam's daughter. So Sophia was adopted when she was a, a baby. She spent the first year of her life first with her birth family and then in, in foster care while uh, the adoption was, was sorted out. And she's a really complex individual. So she is incredibly intelligent, bright, switched on, big eyes, sees, hears, everything. But she has a lot of issues that, that are a, a hangover from her chaotic past. So she has attachment disorder. Uh, she's very precocious. So she, she was reading at, at the age of, of three. And she has a bit of a kind of a power thing going on herself. So she plays mum off against dad and, and vice versa. And that causes a, a lot of stress within their relationship. But she is feisty and funny and charming. And I really loved writing her. I really liked her character arc. Yeah, she, um, she, she was fun. And I think I would never, I'd never go back to these characters. This is not a series. This is a one-off book. 
but uh, I'd, I'd love to know, you know, where she is in in ten years' time. I, I think she's uh, she's destined for big things, certainly. But my least favorite character to write, and this is a bit of a cheat because I actually I love writing all my characters, but I had to I had to kill somebody, and I won't I won't give their name because obviously that's a, a bit of a spoiler. But somebody had some someone won a reader won an auction lot, and the prize in this auction charity auction was to be a character in my book. And it's a great thing to do. And it raised money for a brilliant charity called Airability, which um, enables disabled people to to take to the sky in, in a plane. So I was really happy to support it. But by the time the prizes were given out, there was only one character that I could rename. And I knew they were going to die. So I had to have a really <laughs> awkward chat with this lovely, lovely person who had won this lot and say, look, I'm really excited that you've done this. Thank you so much. Really generous. I'm afraid I'm going to have to kill you. And he was awfully nice about it and uh, completely understands. But I did feel rather bad that his one sort of claim to fame and and stab at immortality ended up uh, so gruesomely. I don't know. Maybe that makes him stand out a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) He's probably like, okay, good. That's a little bit different character than I was expecting to be. Well, tell me about the cover. I am such a huge cover and title person, and I just think this cover is fantastic. So did you have any say in it? Did it come back like you wanted it initially? Was there back and forth? How did all of that happen? Well, I will tell you something, Cindy, that I've not spoken to anybody about. I didn't like it to begin with. Oh. Um, so, and this is really unusual for me because normally I get my covers and I'm like, oh my word, this is amazing. But the first iteration of this, I was like, yeah, it's yeah. it's all right. <laughs> this is not what I was thinking. <laughs> no. Um, and uh, so, yes, th- there was quite a lot of back and forth. And this particular back and forthness was done with my UK publishers who were working on this cover before any of the other countries. And so we talked about it a lot. And we talked a lot about what we wanted to convey. And what it boiled down to was that, of course, there had to be a plane on it. But actually, this is more than just a thriller about something that happens on a plane. That you know, this is about relationships and tension and claustrophobia and what's happening on the ground versus what's happening in in the air, and trying to get those two things somehow represented uh, on the cover. So the sorts of things we played around with were things like making the sky much darker and moodier so the background to the to the cover is a a stormy sky that at the top of the book is really really dark almost almost sort of bluey black and then lower down it's it's a bit lighter we played around with the contrails of a plane which on some book covers can look really sort of happy and make you think of holidays and and so they had to be slightly more menacing than that so they were played around with and then i think the final touch that we discussed and, and changed was a, a single light on in one of the houses. So you see two houses in almost silhouette at the bottom of, of the cover. And one of them has a, a fiery light in, in the window. And that little addition actually made a huge difference. So it was a real team effort. I've got a phenomenal arts team in, in my UK publishing house. And the testament to their success is that actually it's the first of my covers that um, is the same in the US and the UK, 
because both countries have fallen in love with it and indeed lots of other countries around the world. So it's really exciting to have just one cover. I was just getting ready to ask you that, that it sounded from this discussion like the UK and the US cover were the same, which does not happen very often. So that is fabulous. I think it makes it so much less confusing. I Yeah, I think so. You know, 20 years ago, it, it probably wasn't a problem. But now everything's online and everyone is so connected and bloggers are, you know, blogging about books on both sides of the pond and everyone's looking at the same, the same books. And actually, I think it, it can be really confusing if a cover is very, very different or even worse, if the title's different. And I've never had that, but I, I know of, of several books where the title is different in each country. And, and that can be really confusing for readers. So I'm, I'm delighted to just have one cover. What, what's interesting, I think, about the US market versus the UK market is that sometimes the actual books are marketed in very different ways. You know, I've seen um, novels that are definitely marketed as suspense in the UK, but have a more romance vibe in, in the US and vice versa. So it's a, you know, it's a very complex business. And I'm glad actually that all I have to do is write the books. But I think with how small the world has become with the internet and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, it can be a little confusing. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, what about what you have read recently that you really liked? So many things. I've got a few a few things that that aren't quite out yet, but I have read in advance copy that people should absolutely look out for. So you will have had Dear Mrs. Bird by A.J. Pierce out a couple of years ago, which was a really funny novel about uh, set in the um, Second World War about a girl who wanted to be a reporter on a um, a war a war correspondent. Uh, and ended up running the agony page on this women's magazine. It's really funny, but also very, very well-researched look at that period of time. Well, she has got a sequel out called Yours Cheerfully. Um, so Yours Cheerfully by AJ Pierce comes out at the end of June, I think, and really, really worth reading. It made me laugh so much, and it was just what I needed in these troubled times. So that's one recommendation. I loved Dear Mrs. Bird. Oh, I can't read it. wait. Yes, I it was one of my favorite books the year that it came out, and I cannot wait for yours cheerfully. I need to try to get a hold of a galley of that. Oh, you must. I actually, I actually think it's one of those rare times when it is better than the first one. Uh, I think it's she's really sort of settled into those characters, and it the world just felt so so real. And it's, uh, it's got a real feminist theme as well about the women working in the munitions factory. I, I thought it was superb. Really, really great. Okay, good. Great. And then I'm really late to the party on this one, but I'm still going to tell everyone to go and read it. So it's Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, which is so incredibly powerful. Now, I listened to this on audio, and sometimes I wonder if it's even more powerful when you're listening to, to the voices of, of these three women. So I know it's been everywhere, and I'm sure most of your listeners have read it. But if they haven't, they absolutely must. The last time that I went to Book Expo, the last time they had it in person, she was there, and they were really promoting that book. Oh, really? And have you read it? I have not. Oh, it is just, it's incredibly, it's quite uncomfortable listening in or reading in many ways, in the same way that, um, so I loved My Dark Vanessa which was, again, very, very powerful, but quite disturbing. But yeah, absolutely superb writing and well, well worth your time. 
I just sometimes don't end up really reading stuff that's very disturbing. I just feel like there's enough happening in the world. And so that's disturbing enough. So I tend to veer away a little bit from disturbing, but I've heard nothing but very good things about it. I know exactly what you mean. And I, I always need a bit of a palate cleanser between if, if I read something that, that's very heavy or quite sort of, you know, has potential to be triggering, then I would always follow it up with, with something like Dear Mrs. Bird or yours cheerfully. So uh, um, it's why I never stick to just one genre. I agree. And I think also there's so many great books coming out in so many genres these days and that some that cross genres. And so it's just fun to read across all of them. And in fact, I think you even talk about that at the end of the book, maybe in your Q&A, that your advice to authors is to read every genre. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, we, we those of us who, who work in the industry, whether as writers or, or vloggers, podcasters, publishers, can sometimes get a little bit hung up on, on genre because we're so sort of inside the categories and, and the industry. But actually, I think most readers just want a good story. And a good story is a good story, no matter what shelf it's on. And, uh, and I feel perhaps a little bit more passionate about this than I might otherwise, because the last book that I wrote wasn't a thriller. So I, I wrote three police suspense novels, and then I wrote a family drama after the end. And now I've written more of an action thriller. So I really kind of move around a bit. And for any anyone who wants to write a novel and is is serious about getting into publishing, then absolutely read across the genres. Look at the New York Times list, and you know read read the top ten, um, regardless of what genre genre there is. Figure out what it is that that makes these stories so compelling. I like that. I think that's a good way to look at it. And I do think while the industry has generally really segregated things into like it has to fit into some genre. There seems to be in the last couple of years, more books that are outside one genre, you know, that could really kind of cross genres or be genre bending or whatever it is. And I love that. Oh, me too. Absolutely. I was thinking about Ghosted by Rosie Walsh. I love that book. Did you? I loved it too. Mm -hmm. So in the UK, it was called The The Man Who Didn't Call. And that is a prime example of of a book that could be marketed either as romance or as suspense. I've even, you know, I've seen it bundled with thrillers. It's got so many different facets to it. And that's why I think let's, let's not get too hung up on genre, just focus on story. Well, and your point about most readers not really paying attention to that is a really good one, because I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, that all of us who are kind of living and breathing it all the time focus so much on where the book is, you know, how the book is marketed or how they're labeling it, but probably your everyday reader who's not in the midst of all of it doesn't pay any attention. No, absolutely. And particularly if they are bricks and mortar shoppers. So if you walk into a bookshop, nine times out of 10, you will, you'll browse, you'll wander around, you'll be drawn to books that are face out or on a table or on a nice display. You'll just be guided by instinct and lovely covers and reading the blurb. The problem comes from online shopping, which of course is a brilliant thing in, in many ways, but it forces us to, to go down categories, to sort of be penned into virtual shelves and, and click on more and more subgenres and subgenres. And that I think is, is slightly dangerous because it narrows our focus and it, it stops us from discovering something that, that is a great book. It just might happen to be on a different shelf. Another great reason to support independent bookstores. Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge (laughs) fan of indie stores. Me too. 
Well, this has been an absolute delight, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. Oh, I've loved it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Claire's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!